You are now listening to the Green History Podcast, produced by Elm Film Studios and presented by AC the Historian. Are you ready yet? I'm on my way to your student's residence right now and I've brought your package with me. I'll see you in around 15 minutes inshallah. Just call me back at 2.15pm. Khair. See you in a while. You can come outside. I'm waiting downstairs. Assalamu alaikum, young man. You're looking very sharp today. MashaAllah. The white thobe and Saudi headgear really does suit you. Just as well, you'll need to blend in very well because today we're going to be traveling back to a very exciting and adventurous time in Saudi history. In fact, it is a very nostalgic era for people of this region because the 60s and 70s were very liberating and progressive decades here in the Middle East, not only for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but also in Iran, Egypt, even Afghanistan and Somalia. You should have seen us back then, afros and flares. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that everyone was like that as there were always some very pious and practicing young people in every era. Here, listen for yourself. This is a video of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman when he was being interviewed by CBS on the 60 Minutes program. There is a widespread perception that the kind of Islam practiced in Saudi Arabia is harsh, it's strict, it's intolerant. Is there any truth to that? After 1979, that's true. We were victims, especially my generation, that suffered from this a great deal. The Crown Prince traces most of Saudi Arabia's problems to the year 1979, when the Ayatollah Khomeini established an Islamic theocracy next door in Iran. The same year, religious extremists in Saudi Arabia took over Islam's holiest site, the Grand Mosque in Mecca. In order to appease their own religious radicals, the Saudis began clamping down and segregating women from everyday life. What has been this Saudi Arabia for the past 40 years? Is that the real Saudi Arabia? Absolutely not. This is not the real Saudi Arabia. I would ask your viewers to use their smartphones to find out. And they can Google Saudi Arabia in the 70s and 60s, and they will see the real Saudi Arabia easily in the pictures. What was Saudi Arabia like 
before 1979. We were living a very normal life, like the rest of the Gulf countries. Women were driving cars, there were movie theaters in Saudi Arabia, women worked everywhere. We were just normal people, developing like any other country in the world, until the events of 1979. Young man, what much of your generation perceives to have been the perpetual state of affairs in the Muslim world could not be farther from reality. If only you had been around before 1979. Why 1979? Well, for one, it was the year in which the people rose up against the Shah in Persia and heralded the era of an ultra-conservative era in Iran. It was also the year in which the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was shaken by an unbelievable societal tremor following the siege of Mecca. After that, many Muslim-majority countries went from being liberal, socialist and nationalist governments to religious institutions with pan-Islamic ideologies. The greatest example being Iran and Saudi Arabia. Of course, Afghanistan and Somalia were also good examples, as they were completely different back in the 60s and 70s compared to what you see today. All you have to do is Google these countries and search for images in the 60s and 70s. I remember how one of my good friends at university, he was from Jeddah, but he had a very huge afro, unimaginable. <laughs> MashaAllah, he is now an imam in Taif. If I showed you how he looked like in his 20s, and how he looks like today, you would never believe it. But such is life. People change and times evolve. I kind of miss those days. Anyway, tell me, do you have any questions for me from our last journey? Yes, you're right to ask about that. Absolutely. Once the Ikhwan were vanquished and their less radical members were incorporated into the Saudi Guard, King Abdul Aziz was then able to continue his social and political policies uninterrupted. So of course, a great many deal had changed in the kingdom from that very moment onwards. For one, oil was discovered in 1938. This discovery would change the entire trajectory of the king's policies and directives. Saudi Arabia was now an oil exporting nation and became wealthy beyond measure. Thereafter, the king himself began to collaborate even more with the Americans, who had been instrumental in unearthing the oil in the first place. Needless to say, the kingdom's new wealth also changed the lifestyle of the old Arab and Bedouin tribes here. They were persuaded to abandon their traditional ways and to embrace a new metropolitan lifestyle. Old desert outposts were transformed into thriving cities, and even the barefooted peasants soon began competing in the constructions of lofty towers. The perfect example of this sudden transformation is that of Sheikh Mohammed bin Awad bin Laden. He was an illiterate and impoverished Yemeni migrant who had emigrated to Tihama before World War I. When he first arrived in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, he found employment as a porter in Jeddah. However, in 1931, he established a small construction company and named it the Saudi Bin Laden Group. At the time, Mohammed Bin Laden was only 23 years old. However, he was soon to become a very close associate and friend of King Abdul Aziz ibn Saud. Mohammed Bin Laden went on to leverage his relationship and proximity to the king in order to acquire key construction contracts, such as the refurbishments of both the mosques in Mecca and Medina. And later on, he secured a contract for the recladding of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. His family, the Bin Ladens, 
became extremely wealthy. In fact, their new fortune made them the richest of all Arabs in this kingdom, second only to the royal family itself. And that was just one example of how the lives of ordinary people were completely transformed within less than one generation. You have another question? Okay, how did the Americans become so closely involved in the region? That's a good question. You see, right from the very moment oil was discovered here, King Abdul Aziz began fostering new relationships with the Americans, much to the frustration and dismay of the British, who after all had supported him in his conquest of the Hejaz and in the subjugation of the Ikhwan. However, the king was now in a position to dictate terms and conditions, and it would appear that the Americans were a more lucrative partner in his ventures. King Abdul Aziz had not sent any troops to participate in the Second World War. In fact, the kingdom was neutral for the most part. However, towards the very final phase of the war, King Abdul Aziz began entertaining meetings with significant political figures. The most historic one being his meeting with the American president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, on Valentine's Day in the year 1945. There's a little bit of a humorous element to this meeting as it was yet another parallel between KSA and the USA, considering that both leaders were wheelchair-bound and the rendezvous itself almost embodied what some political historians and analysts would compare to a political date between the USA and KSA. Anyway, there are many anecdotes recounting that historic meeting, something for you to research later on, perhaps. Ah yes, no the Americans had not yet settled in Saudi Arabia. In fact, King Abdul Aziz and President Roosevelt held their meeting on the USS Quincy, which was on the Suez Canal in Egypt. Their discussions lasted for three days and were centered around terms for the ongoing alliance between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United States of America, a friendship that would characterize the policies and directives of both nations for many decades to come. A few days later, King Abdul Aziz was invited to another meeting in Egypt. This time it was with the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. They had met at the Grand Hotel du Lac, just 50 miles outside of Cairo. The meeting with the British Prime Minister was not as pleasant and smooth as that with the American President. For example, during lunch, Churchill was requested not to smoke or consume alcohol in the presence of the King, as it was against the rulings of Islam. In response, Churchill addressed the king directly with the claim that in his religion it was an absolute sacred right to smoke cigars and drink alcohol before, after, and if in need, during all meals and in between meals as well. He then lit his cigar and continued with the rest of his lunch. What did the king do? Well, nothing. I mean, what could he have done? In the end, King Abdul Aziz did his best for his people, but he was nonetheless subjected to assassination plots. One such attempt took place in Mecca. While he was performing his Hajj pilgrimage, he survived following serious heart conditions. According to Saudi reports, the king died in his sleep. He was 78 years old. Following the death of King Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, the throne was given to his son Saud his rule was marred with controversy and chaos, though he lasted 11 years. In the end, the Al Saud and their supporters resolved to force King Saud to abdicate 
in favour of his younger brother, Prince Faisal. Faisal took over from his elder brother in the year 1964 and completed transforming the policies and directions of the kingdom during his 11-year rule as the king of Saudi Arabia. A great king he was, and a true ruler. Sadly, he was gunned down in his own office. The assassin was his own nephew, who had returned from the US after studying there for some time. The story is very long and complicated. However, the kingdom still mourns his death. In fact, the Muslim world mourns his death. Did you know that he was named Times Man of the Year in 1975 and that the city of Faisalabad in Pakistan was named after him in 1979 to commemorate his great financial contribution to the people of Pakistan? He had a great legacy indeed. But when King Faisal died, his brother Khalid became the next king of Saudi Arabia. Khalid ruled for seven very eventful and transformative years between 1975 and 1982. This is in fact the period of modern Saudi history that we will be focusing on heavily over the next few journeys. The reign of King Khalid not only revolutionized Saudi society but it also radicalized it in many ways. It was a cataclysmic era full of dramatic events and cultural shifts that would push Saudi society to a new height of religiosity and conservativeness. None of it was really as a direct result of King Khalid alone. However, it was just how things turned out. The fallout between 1979 and 1980 will always mark a historical turning point in this kingdom. When you hear Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman talking about Saudi Arabia before 1979, it is in direct reference to the cultural and social norms that had been subdued and reversed towards the end of that decade. But enough talk anyway, let us witness history for ourselves, we're about to enter the fast lane, hold tight. possible this time because we're in a more modern and technologically advanced era in the history of Saudi Arabia. The date today is June 15th 1978 and we're driving through Riyadh right now. We shall be heading to Medina later on. Faizan, reach beneath your seat and pull out the box hidden in the compartment. It's your package. Open it. That's right, it's a camera, but not just any camera. This model enables you to take pictures back in time. I'd previously tried to take pictures with many other cameras, only to discover that the images would turn blank when I returned to the future. This model, however, is very different, as it retains the images completely. It's yours. Now, if you don't mind, can you start taking pictures along our journeys? I'll need them for my private collection. Here. Let's park over there and take a little detour by foot. Faisan, look to your left. Please take a picture. It's amazing how these people went from camels to supercars in less than one generation. It's a frighteningly rapid social change. But the oil has really transformed everything here. Let's take a few more. 
How about that Ferrari to the right? Beautiful, isn't it? King Faisal did a truly great job turning things around in this kingdom. If you look to the right, you can see Riyadh University for Women. It was founded here eight years ago, in 1970. Saudi Arabia is given a bad cover in most American and Western outlets. One would be led to think that there was nothing but sand and camels in this land. Look to the right now, near the shops. Yes, another picture please. Those feminists who like to talk about women only being able to drive in 2019 have absolutely no clue whatsoever. They're simply undereducated and underread in what really goes on here. Faisan, the fact is, women here are not only able to study and drive vehicles, but they can also work, travel alone, and do many other things. However, everything changed at the end of the decade for reasons that should become very clear to you at the end of this journey. In any case, never allow foreign media to paint an image of backwardness and underdevelopment in this kingdom. Because as you can see for yourself, this is a very cosmopolitan destination. Look at that American man posing for a picture. Take a snap, why don't you? The people here are very friendly, mashallah. In fact, this city boasts of over half a million inhabitants right now and is equipped with universities and special institutions such as the King Faisal Specialist Hospital, the College of Applied Medical Sciences, the Imam Muhammad ibn Saud University, the Saudi Arabian National Center for Science and Technology, and even a TV tower, not to mention the British International School and industrial sites such as the Ajlan and Brothers Clothing Factory that produces the famous Saudi garments and headgear that many people wear over here. This is truly an amazing case of rapid social development. What you're hearing is music coming from the music store across the road. Yes, there are music stores in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, even in Medina. In fact, Egyptian and Lebanese singers such as Umm Kulthum, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab and Fayrouz are very popular here. As you can see for yourself, some of the young Saudis are dressed in jeans and western attire. Contrary to popular belief, during the 60s and 70s, the niqab and abaya were not compulsory attire for the women of Saudi Arabia. Some even went without hijab. This is the era of Saudi Arabia that Prince Mohammed bin Salman is fighting to re-establish in the modern kingdom. Do you remember the concert in Riyadh in 2019? It's a symbol of the celebration of a 40-year period that began in 1979 when Saudi Arabia went from being what you're seeing right now to the ultra-conservative nation we're all familiar with today. 2019 is considered to be the rebirth of Saudi Arabia. Anyway, we should head back now. We have a long journey ahead of us today. Okay, it's time for us now to head to Medina. I should take you on a guided tour of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's Masjid. 
you'll be able to take more pictures once we get there inshallah Faisan, wake up young man, we're in the blessed city of Medina. Take a look at the famous University of Medina, to your left. It was built here in 1961. Since then, it has continued to expand with new faculties, teaching Quran, Arabic language, Hadith, Sharia, Aqeedah, and many other subjects of speciality. Teachers from all over the Muslim world are being invited here to instruct students. Many of the Muslim world's most notable thinkers and influential figures will graduate from this university in years to come. Over here we have the faculty of Hadith, Dar al-Hadith, which actually predates the university itself. But more surprisingly, it was founded by an Indian scholar of the Ahlul Hadith movement. His name was Ahmed ibn Muhammad al-Dihlawi. He came from Delhi and established his school here in 1931 during King Abdul Aziz's reign. Two years later in 1933, he founded another school in Mecca alongside two Egyptian colleagues of Rashid al-Rida. Do you know who Rashid al-Rida was? No, I didn't expect you to know. But this is something we shall explore later on. Keep these names in mind though. Anyway, in 1971, Darul Hadith was incorporated into the University of Medina. You know, Indian scholarship has had a very profound impact on the history of the Hejaz but for some reason our South Asian scholars do not get the credit and appreciation that they are due. Without them much of the academic heritage and brilliance we rely upon would not have been possible. Anyway, the Islamic University of Medina has a splendid history but it is underappreciated. Did you know for example that the Saudi is funded and administered an official branch of this university in Somalia. It was called the Institute of Islamic Solidarity and was located in Mogadishu, where students would be taught using the same syllabus that was used in the Islamic University of Medina for the second year level. Thereafter, the most able and intelligent students would be granted scholarships to attend the university here in Medina. Our Somali brothers also have an underappreciated history when it comes to Islamic scholarship and heritage. Faizan, there is so much to uncover and explore. It's such a shame that so many of us are unawakened and unconcerned with Islamic history. Much good could be derived from its study. We're now approaching the Prophet's Masjid. We shall be there in a few moments, inshallah. Once we arrive, I shall give you a guided tour of the Prophet's Mosque, sallallahu alayhi wasallam.